This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. This is the 21st episode of the Technically Human podcast, and to celebrate us turning 21, the Technically Human podcast is going legal. Jeff Ward is the director of the Duke Center on Law and Tech, DCLT, the Associate Dean for Technology and Innovation, and Clinical Professor of Law at Duke Law, where he teaches courses on the intersection of law and emerging technologies, such as Frontier AI and Robotics, Law and Ethics, and offers the Duke Law Tech Lab pre-accelerator program for early stage legal tech companies. He connects legal technology stakeholders from broad backgrounds through Duke Law by Design and uses the tool of the law to help ensure that new technologies ultimately empower and ennoble all people and expand access to quality legal services. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Deb. So this conversation is broadly, I hope, going to delve into the intersection of law, technology, and education. But before we start that conversation, or maybe as a way to get us into that conversation, I wanted to ask you about this description that you have on your faculty page website. In the first paragraph of your profile, you start off not with your work, but rather with this wonderful scene-setting piece of descriptive imagery of your office on Duke's campus, and more specifically, of a painting that you have in your office. The description that your page has reads as follows. In Jeff Ward's office hangs a vibrant Basquiat-style painting depicting a human and a robot side by side. It's called Living in Harmony, and it sums up Jeff's current work using the tools of the law to shape technology in ways that empower and ennoble people. I'm quoting there from your website. Now, I'm a trained humanist who's interested in the arts, and specifically, I'm a literary scholar. And we humanists and literary scholars pay very close attention to things like imagery, because especially as portals into narrative about character or plot and the ideas we ought to understand about them, these things take on immense meaning. So I can't help but fixate for a moment on this image as somehow central to your character, your vision for tech and law and education. I wanted to ask you about this painting and your reasons for putting it on your description of your work. How does this painting in your office reflect or characterize the work that you undertake in that office? Well, thanks for that, Deb. That's a fun starter starter question. <laughs> One, I've spent a lot less time in that office recently because of uh, the pandemic, and you know, a lot more time at home and on on Zoom and such. Uh, so I really miss that painting. It's actually it was done by my nephew, and he's a talented artist and also a current uh, law student, uh, and so it means a lot to me. So the first thing I would say is that the reason it's there and the reason why I enjoy that description is it reminds me of a loved one. But you know, I I used to teach high school humanities and. Um, I often say that the law and technology courses I teach, like my current Frontier AI and Robotics Law and Ethics course, are really the most humanities-oriented courses I've ever taught. You know, and as you say, the, the goal, like the painting Living in Harmony, the, our goal in teaching these courses is to really help ensure that emerging technologies ultimately empower and ennoble people. So, you know, in order to make sense, I think, of and ultimately not just understand, but shape 
emerging technologies. I, I think we need to understand how they connect to human values, uh, you know, what it means to be human, what makes a healthy society, what does human flourishing entail? And so art, and I think many kinds of art, really help us to ask these questions. Uh, in my course, we start with a short story. We frequently reference sci-fi literature and programs like Black Mirror. And in some semesters, I make music playlists for my students. And so I just, I guess I think it's especially important with tech innovation uh, because we, we really need art to help us envision various futures. I guess the potential futures we want and it just as much the potential dangers we want to avoid. And I think we also need art to help engage a society in stuff that is increasingly technologically sophisticated and might otherwise seem outside their limits. And so uh, I see lots of value in having art be front and center in this kind of tech and law engagement. I wanted to pick up on something that you mentioned early on in your answer, which is that you worked as an English teacher. As an English professor, I'm so curious about your how your training and your background teaching English has influenced your thinking as a legal scholar and a practitioner. Has it? Yeah, I mean, I guess probably in many ways and probably more than I realized. I guess a, f a couple that are probably at the forefront. One is, um, in fact, just yesterday, Deb, uh, I taught my, my class with yesterday evening, and we talked a lot in that class about narrative imagination. That's the word that I use. And we frequently use this notion of emerging technology. We talk about the here, what's happening now, the near, what's just on the horizon, and the oh my dear, the stuff that will freak you out. You know, I mentioned Black Mirror before, and I think it's really good at some of the near and the oh my dear. But, you know, in order to get at that, that's really hard just to be concrete. We were rethinking yesterday the liability that comes from cyber technical systems systems such as autonomous vehicles and really trying to envision different futures. I think a narrative imagination can help us to anticipate, see what the future might look like, and, and therefore pull forward some of our actions and inter interventions because we see what might come. Um, it helps us imagine what may come. And, and I think even more importantly, I mean, we have to admit, uh, even whatever other kinds of diversity we might represent, all of us sitting in that law class, and I have an interdisciplinary class with students from outside the law school as well, but we nonetheless are a pretty privileged group. Here we are, college graduates in graduate programs with the privilege of learning from one another. We represent a pretty narrow band of thinkers, if you think about it. And so if we care about not only the effects that technology has on some people, but on all people, we have to build empathy. And, and I think that narrative imagination can help us to overcome some of our narrow representation problem, the fact that we have too few stakeholders at the table. And it's really essential when we're trying to prepare for futures that are shaped by technological change uh, and to ensure that our technologies do what we want them to. So I, I, I guess the starting point is to say that I think creativity and a narrative imagination is really a core skill set and, and a core value. But the, I think the other thing that I like that I, where I see my literature background really influencing me is that, I mean, as you know, literature is such a product of its time and its authors. You know, even sci-fi, which is deliberately trying to oftentimes access another time, it's usually the vision of an author in, say, the 1960s about a particular culture in, say, the 2020s, right? So it's very time-oriented. And I guess, just to pick an example, if we took, say, Hester Prynne from, from Hawthorne, you know, the scarlet letter that she's made to wear tells us about one sector of a society's views on morality and Punishment. I mean, Toni Morrison's Sula gives us insights into some competing attempts at greater autonomy from a couple of characters who are battering, battling barriers at the intersection of race and gender. And, and I guess it's helpful for me to understand, and I want my students to as well, to understand law in similar ways as um, not something that's ontologically given. Uh, not a construct that is set in stone, but rather, I guess, a construct that is derived of conscious and unconscious choice with a set of narratives that both respond to an existing context and then, of course, in turn, shape 
context going forward, you know, a, a narrative that's able to be reshaped and better serve our needs. So I guess both law and literature, and it, there's probably many ways where they're not the same, but both law and literature, I think, should invite some careful critical analysis. And literature, uh, I guess, maybe what I would call the ultimate design exercise, an author in his or her utmost creativity sat down and told a story. And I like to believe that law is able to be designed and to believe in the power of design over over determination. You know, it's interesting. I, I've been meditating on the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Ruth Bader Ginsburg spoke about her attention and her insistence on the particular. In a sense, one of the critiques of law is that law tends to generalize. Law tends to ask for general rules that sometimes sweep over the individual. Narrative, of course, is about the individual, right? Stories are written about individual people. Do you see those things as intention with one another? Absolutely. Even more so now with technology playing more of a role in the application of our legal structures and our and our policies. So um, I love that, you know, a focus on the particular, you know, in, in the midst of a ongoing but more aware racial justice movement um, that, that's happening right now and greater awareness of intersectionality where race, gender, socioeconomic class, other things can define a person's life story and the structures and the opportunities that they have. As we move toward technology that oftentimes works at scale, we, you know, at a very, in a very general sense, have an impulse toward the general, an impulse toward the uniform that's broadly applicable. And so not only law, which tends to be, we want it to be equally applicable to, to all, but where it's facilitated by technology, we can very easily and very often do, I think, make the mistake of assuming that everybody feels the law and is influenced by the law similarly. And we certainly know that that's not true. And so I, I love that what you just provided as a contrast, that literature also helps us to be immersed in the particular and to know somebody's story, because certainly I, I mentioned Sula before, Nell and Sula from Toni Morrison Sula certainly experienced life in that particular uh, place in Ohio, different than say somebody of my um, background would have at the same time. And I think that's really important. You know, I work with a lot of undergraduates and a lot of them are thinking about their career tracks, especially in the context of tech. I'm hoping that many of my English majors and people who have these kind of narrative capabilities end up going into something like law uh, where they can bring that attention to the particular. And I'm hoping that many of them go into uh, the context of tech and become learned humanist technologists. I wonder if you could say a little bit about how you got into the intersection of law and technology and particularly humanistic approach to these two categories. What was your path and, and what made you want to teach it? Well, I think that this is a question we care about very much. Thanks for asking a, a student-focused question. I mean, if we could get more of our bright, very bright students to engage with these socio-technical questions and become leaders in ethical technology development, I think maybe we can uh, say we've done our part. So <laughs> you see, I, I think it's really important to, to take this moment to say I, I'm not a technologist. And that's something I always want people to know. It's the only thing from my bio that I want people to know. And the reason is I think we can construct mental barriers to engaging with technology. And what I want to do more than anything is lower the barrier and help people see not only can you engage with technology, but given its role in our modern society, democracy, et cetera, we need to, and we need way more people to, to be a part of it and all can really take part. So my own path here maybe is, is helpful. I, I think it was a combo of both 
professional and personal experiences, or, or maybe more accurately, professional and personal frustrations. At the time that I kind of made the sharp move toward law and technology, I was actually directing a legal clinic. Clinics are a, a particular form of pedagogy and experience at a law school where law students take on clients from the community and provide legal services to them. And I was directing a clinic called the Startup Ventures Clinic. It was an entrepreneurship clinic. We were helping those people who were forming new companies to grow, scale, thrive, et cetera. And I felt pretty much week after week that everybody who came in was applying some new technology or existing technology in a new way to an industry and you know, using the conventional words of disruption and, and all that. And I just sat there increasingly sheepish feeling like I did not understand the technologies that they were using, and I didn't understand the implications of them using it. And as a consequence, you know, I may have been able to answer some narrow legal questions for them, but I didn't feel like a good counselor or advisor. I didn't feel like I was wearing the full mantle of a counselor or legal advisor if I couldn't help them ask questions around the impacts of their companies on the communities they cared about. And then on top of that, of course, I had the double concern that if I can't do it, how can I teach my students to do it really well? And so I, I really just felt professionally like I wasn't in a good position to provide what people needed. And that therefore, I felt this really urgent need to incorporate more understanding of and careful thought about the intersection of law and technology into our law school, into the law in general. So that was part of it. And then on the personal side, this sounds a little bit silly, but you know, I have, I have two children. They're, they're currently 13 and 15, but when this happened, they were younger. But I nonetheless saw them growing up in a time of social media and ubiquitous mobile devices. And my wife and I both would say things are different for them. They're, they're encountering their social circles differently than we, we did. We're, we need to come up with rules, parameters, uh, understandings, et cetera, that are very different than anything we've ever experienced before. And what it drove home for me is that these are not just issues that happen inside some corporate context. They're not just issues that happen inside a lab. These technologies are out in public. They are reshaping our interactions with each other. They are reshaping the way we build relationships and understand who we are. And that to me seemed fundamental and, and essential to legal understanding. This is reshaping where we're at. And so both of those experiences made me, I guess, get a little bit excited, ner you know, nervous excitement is maybe the right way to say it, but really passionate about better understanding the implications of inserting uh, these, these new, increasingly powerful, uh, increasingly uh, widespread technologies into our, our culture. And so that's kind of what got me here. And again, I start from I'm you know, English literature background, I have no technological training. Everybody can do this. I think many of us with that kind of background need to move into these spaces and be part of the conversation. Now, I'm in Silicon Valley, and there's a lot of intellectual property lawyers or a lot of lawyers doing acquisitions and mergers around tech companies in my neighborhood. But I don't know whether those folks have the same kind of intellectual equipment to think about these things as what you're teaching. And maybe we can back up even a little bit more than that, because my question here is, are there a lot of legal practitioners and legal scholars out there thinking about these things already? And then a second question from that is what led Duke to initiate and develop a center on law and technology? What are the needs and concerns that the center was responding to that perhaps the intellectual property lawyers and the merger and acquisition and IPO lawyers who are working in the tech ecosystem may not already know or have? There are a, a lot of and an increasing number of programs, academic institutions, uh, scholars really focused on these questions. 
there are groups within law firms and corporations and others increasingly focused on these questions. So you'd have a, a set of dedicated people. And then I think there's also a growing understanding that probably you and I share, which is that this doesn't necessarily have to be a specialist. It's almost like we want to say everybody as a core part of your kind of liberal arts education or whatever it might be, should be able to um, frame these questions. We ask people to read Shakespeare because it tells something about their ability to have critical close reading and insight or, or you know, whatever it might be in the same way that we might want under, people to understand the socio-legal significances of artificial intelligence, for instance. And uh, that doesn't mean your practice as a lawyer is entirely in artificial intelligence, but it means that you're going to be rubbing elbows with people who ask these questions and have these discussions, and you should be ready to engage. So I, I do think there's a growing understanding there, and more and more programs within law schools and without are trying to prepare people for that. In terms of why we initiated the Center on Law Technology, I, I think there's a pyramid of reasons. I use pyramid purposely there. At the base, we recognize that jobs and the future of legal practice are tech-facilitated increasingly. And that we want to make sure that when we have students coming to our school, many taking on debt, that we're preparing them for a job market. And that's just, that's part of our duty. And we want them to be uh, ready to hit the ground running and we want them to be ready to, to add value. But I think probably more importantly for me and what hits at my heartstrings more is up the pyramid, there's uh, you know this opportunity to use technology to do something in law that has not been done for many decades. And that is to close the access to justice gap. We have a society where um, you know, we rank very low internationally in terms of the ability for folks to use legal services to solve their problems. We have a vast majority of low-income individuals with zero access to civil legal services for things like eviction, family law issues, other really important health issues, et cetera. We have the majority of middle-income Americans without access as well. And I guess my thesis is that unless we intentionally intervene, modern technology tools like the decision-making capacity of machine learning and deep learning aren't going to accrue to the benefit of those people unless we uh, help to make sure they are. So part of our engagement too is to say, how can we help shape the benefits of these technologies toward the communities that we care about and to a lingering problem in the law? And then I think the last reason, which is the broadest and can't be as easily summarized, is simply that AI, blockchain, brain-computer interfaces, drones, autonomous vehicles, et cetera, are all just reshaping our world. And law is supposed to be responsive to that and a set of guardrails to move us culturally and societally together in a, a way that is intentional, in a way that is consistent with our values. And so we really wanted to make sure that we had a group of thinkers, graduates, et cetera, who were able to ask and help to answer those questions. So, you know, it's in that way, that last one's a little bit of a cop out. Deb to say, you know, we're responding to all questions with technology, but uh, so there, it's a big umbrella and there's room for all, but, but it's also a way of jumpstarting, you know, thinkers in all sorts of areas, whether it be health law, whether it be constitutional law, whether it be those who are collaborating with folks across campus, whatever it is, um, to help them ask and answer those really important questions. To pick your epistemological uh, metaphor here, uh, pyramid, or the second one you used, umbrella here, the Center for Law and Technology is part of, or is under the umbrella of, or is on a pyramid that has its base a larger commitment by the university to tech ethics and policy. Where does a legal framework fit into ethics and policy? Are those terms legal and ethics synonymous with one another? Are they in tension with one another? Are they symbiotic with one another? Policy, ethics, law, in the context particularly of technology? Or are there, are there tensions between these terms and their practice and their study? 
that's a good question, a really hard question. Um, <laughs> you know, I think to try to get at it, we probably have to start with where we are technologically. Uh, we're really at a critical juncture in human history where you know our family, community, political, and broader network engagements are really facilitated quite deeply by technology. And as a result of that technological facilitation, we're granting tremendous power to these technological tools. You know, as I often say, we've spent thousands of years truly asking questions about when and how to grant powers to government. How do we regulate speech? What are our rules for community engagement, et cetera? And those same questions are really at the heart of law, but those same questions and those similar grants of power are playing out on our platform technology that have billions of people involved, where much of the information sharing and political discourse that occurs on these platforms is, is set by an algorithmic set of rules, where imagery and art are being shared more ubiquitously than in any other um, area in human history across these platforms and shaping people's perceptions of other communities themselves, their societies. While that's, I think, true and I think almost inarguable, there's been very, very little public discussion or intentional decision making about how these particular technologies shape the public good, about how these particular technologies should be beholden to a set of uh, political guardrails that kind of thing. We just haven't had the same measure of public discourse that we can point to when we cede power to a government. So I think to, to go to your bottom of the pyramid, you know, absolutely Duke University sees this as a priority. And I think many universities here can you know, play a role in this. Um, but I don't think departments of universities can do it in isolation. You know, like where speech, for instance, speech issues are, of course, an issue in the law school. They're also embedded in an optimization algorithm. Right. So where that's true, law, policy, engineering folks need to work together. And, you know, where, where companies are increasingly turning out products that shape our democracy, law, business, ethics, engineering, philosophy all need to work together. And so but Duke's a place where that happens. There's a certain proximity on our campus. All our buildings are close to each other. It's easy for us to share. I also teach at, um, at, at Pratt in the Master's of Engineering Management program. Um, and there I see the students. These are engineer trained students clearly asking social questions around um, the technologies. I see I'm part of the, the faculty group that is just a wonderful faculty that consistently shares uh, not only best teaching practices that, that ask ethical questions, but uh, and much to my pleasure, also shares literature and books all the time. Our listserv is just blowing up all the time with, look what I just read and you need to see this. And, you know, so across campus, people are caring about these issues and there's no stark kind of social technical divide, I don't, I don't think. But, you know, of course, when you say, are there tensions? I do think some of that remains because we've built these institutions and these institutional structures in ways that always saw computer science and law as two different things, right? It's really only uh, recently, very recently, that we see a connection between uh, an optimization algorithm and First Amendment law, for instance. And so we're, we're working hard, as many others are, um, you know, here we have, I'm a lawyer, you're an English professor, you know, speaking together. Um, these kinds of conversations need to happen more, but they're definitely happening. And, and Duke has made that a priority and, and really helps facilitate. I'm really fascinated and excited by this approach and, and your particular deep interest in interdisciplinarity. I mean, clearly the problems that you're talking about here and the problems that these technologies are trying to solve are deeply interdisciplinary. I like to use the metaphor of, um, not the metaphor, the actual environment we're in right now of coronavirus. Of course, it's a medical problem. Of course, it's a biological problem. Of course, it's a problem that requires a deep knowledge of 
technologies like vaccines and uh, a deep understanding of the atmosphere of the human body, but it's also a psychological problem and a cultural problem and a political problem and a legal problem, right? So these problems are so vast and so complex and they have so many different moving parts that they, to me, obviously require an interdisciplinary approach. I want to ask you to, to maybe articulate very briefly, why interdisciplinary scholarship and thinking is so important to your thinking and to what you teach? I mean, ner more narrowly, to, to look at law first, I mean, law is an interesting discipline in the United States. And one reason is that it all happens at a graduate level. And as a consequence, I just want to talk about this very particular structure within law. We derive our law students from diverse undergrad backgrounds right? You do not have to have a specific undergraduate degree in order to go to law school. So we have people from the humanities, from all sorts of technologies, from policy, you know, we have people coming internationally. So we have a certain measure of diversity and um, different perspectives that come to law school. But then what's really um, interesting, and I lament a little bit to answer your question, is that we have a very common graduate level training in law school. If I talk to a lawyer from anywhere in the United States, uh, and even a lawyer from almost any decade in the last hundred years in the United States, we start to talk about our legal education in very, very similar ways. In other words, we oftentimes read the same cases, had the same experience, had the same course schedule, et cetera. We, we have a, a narrowing of diverse pers perspectives through the structure of law school. And so um, on top of that, I think law has a premium, puts a premium on expertise. You go to a lawyer in order to get expert advice, you know, quote unquote, expert advice. We don't put a premium on experimentation. In fact, in some senses, we would ex consider experimentation malpractice, right? It's, it's just not built into the system. We also have confidentiality issues that um, keep us from sharing information and data with others. And, and this is a little bit back to the access to justice issue, Deb. We have professional responsibility rules that keep us from practicing with other professionals, sharing fees with them, um, allowing others to enter our world. We have something called unauthorized practice of law. So as a consequence, what I see is a structure that for all the good it does, it nonetheless keeps innovation and, keep, and creativity out because we don't have those diverse perspectives. We don't have that sharing. And as, as a consequence, I think our best possible futures suffer because we don't invite that innovation. So that's one reason I care about interdisciplinarity. Uh, it's a way of bringing in diverse perspectives that help us get to a better solution set. Um, but as you said, I think more broadly, you know, none of these problems can be solved by law alone. You know, we need technologists to understand the social implications of their technology. Uh, they need lawyers and social thinkers, and we need lawyers and social thinkers to be able to work with technologists. So, um, you know, many of the key players, just to use a quick example, working on a particular project, it's going to be an engineer sitting at a desk working on one part of, say, a coding project who may not understand not only the broad implications of uh, the technology that's being put out by the company, but maybe not even how to talk to people within the large company about what his or her concerns might be, right? So helping um, everybody to see the broader view and to be able to, to talk to each other is really necessary. And, and I think interdisciplinarity can help us with that. Just, just as a quick anecdote, if you don't mind, I, you know, I have interdisciplinary students in my class. Um, I oftentimes start with that story that I, told, I mentioned before, the short story. And one of the questions that arises is whether we're extending rights to a particular uh, technological tool. Um, and even by saying tool, I'm using words that, that shape, right? So, um, but what I often find is that the law students in my class answer the question in light of prevailing constitutional law, 
Whereas the students from outside the law school tend to take from the first step a broader view about what values are they trying to protect, what would make sense, regardless of what the law says at that time. And, I, and in some ways, both people are right. But I have to say, as a lawyer who operates around the narrower view set, I find it really valuable to have those people in my class to help me and my students to ask a different question, to approach a problem in a different way. And I think we get to a better place when we benefit from that uh, diverse insight. Absolutely. Diversity of insight is one of the things that I'm committed to as well. I think that if we were to go back to this idea of the particular, you know, the more particular views you have, the more complexity some of these broad blanket statements take on. I want to switch gears here and, and ask you a question about how you're thinking about the guidelines that we're setting right now for the future. I think right now we're seeing the deep importance of the law, not only in putting out restrictions and guidelines for what we do right now, but also for generations to come. That's the thing that I think we're grappling with here. We're looking at these technologies. We're seeing that the patterns that they're creating are are going to be with us for a very long time. And there's a lot of debate about whether or not these technologies are fundamentally changing the fabric of our culture in such a way that they require new thinking and and new guidelines. Certainly, there's an interest in and a deep energy around thinking about the guidelines that we're putting in place right now as guardrails, as you put it, for the future. That's something that, if I understand your thinking correctly, you are particularly committed to. Why is it so important for law broadly and for the legal dimension of policy about technology specifically to think about putting up guardrails, not only for our moment, for the future? So I guess at a, at a very high level, I, I fear the trap of technological determinism, this kind of uh, throw your hands up in the air type of attitude that uh, technology marches forward and we are its victims or we are its um, you know, subject to it. I feel like the agency you know, principal relationship is reversed in that way and that we have to remember that we have choices we can make and help shape. Just one example right now, there's a growing use of facial recognition technology. Uh, that facial rec- recognition technology comes with a tremendous amount of potential benefits. It also comes with a tremendous amount of potential violations of what we might consider uh, rights, autonomy, etc. And so you see a lot of people ahead of time trying to set up rules that will guide its use before it's too late. So part of why I care about it is just to help remind us of our ability to make decisions uh, and to choose what kind of society we want to live in. You know, I think part of that and the, the other reason why it's, it's important to pull it forward and care about it a lot is that we oftentimes shape incentives in the law. One example might be shareholder primacy, right? Companies right now, the fiduciary duties of shareholders uh, and the way those are shaped uh, tend to prioritize a, a narrow band of shape, uh, stakeholders, which are the shareholders. And, uh, you know, that law started to form uh, in the early 20th century at a time when we could never have envis- envisaged a single company with uh, just a few, you know, 10,000 employees um, touching the lives of 3 billion people, right? And so uh, another reason I care about is that, and this goes back to the narrative imagination that I mentioned before, Deb, that I think we need to imagine what might happen and try to pull forward and anticipate so that we can help to use these technologies to achieve our best uh, best ends. But I, but I also think, and I hope I'm not skipping, you know, to, to a different part of the question, but, you know, I, I think the legal system is not well suited for rapid exponential technological growth all the time. And so, um, you know, the way in which the legal system has dealt with emerging technologies, it, it always a law, the law in a common law system has been flexible. 
were able to adapt and change in really impressive ways in history. But law is also reactive and primarily post hoc. It happens through uh, after an issue arises through the development of case law uh, as people go to court and use our litigation system. And that ex post, that inability to, to anticipate or react in a really timely fashion is, of course, exacerbated by rapidly emerging technologies, right? Where there's first a need to understand a developing technology then a need to kind of get your head around its socio-legal significances. Why does it matter? Then consider best approaches, then build consensus around those, then legislate and implement, et cetera, et cetera. That process that I just outlined there is oftentimes quite incongruent with how quickly uh, our modern technologies have an impact on society. And so one reason I care about it is to try to help us change that dynamic a little bit uh, and help us to think about Uh, being anticipatory, help us to think about um, creating the right guardrails before harm is done, uh, and really, in particular, to think about the ways that our emerging technologies have disparate impacts and don't, back to our Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the particular, don't oftentimes affect one individual in the same way as another. Um, Those of us who have the privilege of access to the law need to be looking out for for everyone. You mentioned the anticipatory, and I wanted to pick your brain about that for a second. If you were to anticipate, what are some of the most important legal issues with regard to tech that are, in your view, going to be coming up in our future or right now? What are some of those tech issues as they intersect with legal thought? That's a great question. It's it's, um, probably appropriate to mention COVID-19, right? So a narrow example of this, I think that really arises is with public health surveillance. So we have everybody walking around with tools in their pockets that allow for data surveillance. And of course, there's been increasing concern over the past decade about what that data sharing means. But at the same time, we have a pandemic and we see the economy being affected. We see people's lives being disrupted, et cetera. And we recognize that the sharing of data in certain ways may allow us to better combat a public health crisis. So I I use that as an example of this amazing tension that I think is one of those core legal issues right now around data. And on the one hand, we have an impulse toward privacy, protection, et cetera, shut it down. And on the other hand, we have an impulse toward uh, using it to be productive, helpful, et cetera. So that tension between privacy and productivity of data is what I would say is probably one of the most important legal issues that we, that we see. And it's across the board in so many sectors. We just happen to feel it really acutely right now with public health surveillance and, and COVID. And I, and I think it leads to an even bigger issue. And that's that if I'm trying to decide whether I should share my data or not, First of all, that's assuming that I understand that there's been full disclosure, that there's that there's an opportunity for informed consent, right? So that's an issue. But if I'm trying to decide whether I want to, as an individual, share my data with an entity, whether it's private, public, or, or, or whatnot, um, I need to be able to trust the, the entity that's, that's holding that data. And I think what it points to, you know, it doesn't seem like I'm naming an important legal issue, but I think I am. We need trusted stewards. How do we get to a place where our um, government, where our private companies that have most of our data, where we can see them as trusted stewards who are acting in the best interest of those who supplied that data? So I see a core legal issue is how do we restore trust? How do we maintain trust in a, in a highly digital age? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, um, I, I, this goes back to creativity. I think there are ways. I think we need to um, 
recognize that the solution set that we've provided, especially within the law, is very narrow. So to go back to an example that we just mentioned, uh, disclosure and consent, right? So one way that we've allowed for data to flow in the past is by saying, well, we've respected the individual's autonomy by fully disclosing and allowing for consent. But you know, it's not too much of a stretch to say that most of us don't read these disclosures, the, the privacy policies in terms of use that, that happen. Um, it, even if we did, they're not exactly incredibly detailed about um, what's being done with our data. Um, they don't fully always disclose the risks of hacking, of amalgamating data, of re-identification um, or de-anonymization, you know, all those kinds of things. And so just asking the question of whether a model of disclosure and informed consent is in keeping with our values and in keeping with the reality of the technology, I think is a really good question to be asking. And I think uh, in terms of solutions, we've found solutions in lots of other areas. There are places who deal with uh, uh, people and scholars who've um, talked about data trusts, um, the uh, implementation of fiduciary duties uh, to data holders. Um, we have new approaches that have come from the GDPR in Europe and CCPA in California and other places that create new rights around data, the right to be forgotten, for instance, the right to data portability, default assumptions that you have to opt in to sharing your data rather than opt out. You know, all of these things can be urged or can be even required by law. And uh, they're just examples of the kinds of things that maybe could get us to a better place that's, that's more consistent with modern data use and helps us to restore trust. But in, in short, I think we need this vast proliferation of new creative tools. And that's one reason why we need more, more and more people like your students to jump on board and help us find uh, these solutions. Okay, students listening, if you want to go to law school, this is your PSA. You are needed. <laughs> One of the issues at the intersection of tech and law that you've written quite a bit about is AI. I wanted, since I have you here, to ask a few questions about that specifically. That's something that I think about a lot, and I was hoping to get the benefit of your expertise here. Why should legal thinkers and practitioners want to or be compelled to understand AI? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, one is that uh, it's touching every industry, every corner uh, of our lives. Um, and so we could go on and on and on about the ways that it has infiltrated our um, our lives in a lot of really helpful ways, in a lot of ways that also might cause some concern, whether it's finance, entertainment, health, et cetera. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. Uh, even the way that my family now chooses what music to listen to is largely driven by uh, algorithms that help us to find music we can all enjoy. I've just mentioned the regime of disclosure and consent, modern deep learning, machine learning, oftentimes produces outputs that can change over time, grow more distant from those who were the architects of the program, and oftentimes evade explanation. Um, and so our ability to disclose and um, achieve that consent might be challenged. We have algorithms protected by trade secret and otherwise that are aimed at uh, changing our behavior, uh, nudging us in certain directions toward um, selecting certain uh, products, uh, reading certain news, whatever it might be, that's that we should care about that. Um, we have an increasing use of AI in order to determine uh, people's access to goods and services uh, and those or to, uh, to rights even. Uh, and those algorithms have uh, the potential for significant biases. Uh, and that is proven over and over again. And, uh, you know, maybe just to give uh, an example, if you don't mind, let me give a, a couple. I care very much about autonomy as you know, an ethical principle, and I see socioeconomic 
growth and mobility in society as, as a manifestation of that autonomy. And therefore, I think access to credit is really important. It helps people start businesses, pay for school, um, deal with health issues, whatever it might be. But we have tens of millions of adult Americans in the United States who don't have access um, to credit because they don't have the requisite information for a FICA score, et cetera. So there are AI tools that are being proposed that provide the opportunity for folks to provide enough data that there can be some indication of credit worthiness in an alternative way of deciding that that person can have access to credit. That's a wonderful opportunity for us to fix something that's wrong with our current credit access system. At the same time, uh, if those are built in the wrong way, they could have biases in them that um, not only violate some of our already protected categories under the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, but may um, specifically uh, be biased against different communities or even take uh, you know, guilt by association. Maybe my Facebook feed happens to have a number of people who've had interactions with the criminal justice system, and maybe somehow that information is working its way in, and I'm being denied credit uh, because that we need to know that and design intentionally. And then another one that has made really big news uh, is the example of the Apple credit card, where we had certain uh, heads of uh, companies claiming publicly that their um, spouses, female um, partners, were given less access to credit than they were, despite the fact that they all, you know, they had equal facts or even uh, superior facts. To, uh, and um, what was happening there is what what it gives us insight into is that. Here we have, since 1974, Equal Credit Opportunity Act, we have a, an actual piece of legislation that protects gender, race, age, et cetera, from discrimination in credit allocations. But we have, and, and so as a consequence, uh, Goldman Sachs and Apple and others who, who run this card said, we don't use any of that gender information in our scoring. But why should you care about AI? Well, because machine learning actually can develop proxies for gender that are very hard to identify. And in fact, uh, was probably doing exactly that. And, and there's further research from computer scientists that have shown in some contexts, like uh, college admissions, et cetera, that actually including race and gender information uh, is, is a better way to deal with that bias. So um, that's a long story, Deb, to say, why should people care about AI in a legal context? Because sometimes modern deep learning actually turns on its head the structures that we thought we had covered through our, our legal system. So maybe it's that we have to change the Equal Credit Opportunity Act or whatever it might be in order to allow for uh, these systems to, to be built, but also to account for um, the categories or the proxies that we care so much about. I mean, this is fascinating. This really gets at the crux of why understanding AI is so important in the legal context. I really wanted to get to a second part of what I understand to be a claim that you've made about AI in the legal context, which has to do with this reality that AIs are not just the subject of legal inquiry and perhaps um, legal strictures, but also part of the legal process itself. And that's something I've been thinking quite a bit about, uh, particularly with, with regard to the nature of evidence, which is something that I think about all the time. You've written that AIs might be used to um, mitigate human bias, but as you just said, that's not always the case. Um, and after all, of course, AIs don't just invent a perspective or a hermeneutic or a way of interpreting information. They automate the perspectives and the interpretive schemes of the people who code them. And those who code them often also have biases. So of course, those biases and blind spots and passions and interests get encoded 
in the AI. There have been cases, for example, in policing situations where AIs have disproportionately and incorrectly identified Black men as perpetrators of crimes because the technologies have biases of the programmers encoded within them. One of my favorite examples of this is an example that comes from financial technology that resonates quite a bit with the example that you just gave. This financial technology company was actually hoping to overcome some of the biases in the process of banking by offering loans at low interest and uh, bank accounts to people who have been typically denied them. And they found that their own AIs were disproportionately rejecting minority communities, particularly communities of color. When they looked into it, what they discovered is that those AIs were using the technology of photography to evaluate the applications because each application had to have a picture attached and AIs encoded with attempts to or abilities to recognize faces oftentimes have a hard time doing that with people of color because technologies around photography were developed to capture white skin. So these AIs were not recognizing a face in the picture and rejecting the application. So there's so many examples here of AIs that already automate a, a, a form of bias. When it comes to these questions, I think the larger stake might be not whether we can automate these things or encode them in an AI, but rather, should we? There are some things that I think we might agree upon that can be automated, but but that, you know, there's some things that if automated, I think take away from some essential quality that we expect from that work. For example, childcare or elder care. We can automate some elements of, of childcare, perhaps at some point all of the elements of childcare. But there does seem to be a principle at stake that the automation actually detracts from, for example, the labor of love or, or care, human empathy. In the context of evidence and judgment, um, I think that there are some human principles that are at stake there that might, we might lose if we automated them. Would automating justice be equivalent to meeting out justice and the deliberation done by somebody like a judge? Is there some other principle at stake here in deciding legal matters that have to do with the concept and principles of justice, things encoded in, in our, our very deep sense of what it means to be, for example, evaluated by our peers or the writing of majority and minority decisions, which come out of a, a deeply, I think, human logic or acknowledgement of the particularity of a, of a situation as well as its broader implications. Should those things cause us to rethink the automation of some of the processes of, of law and justice? Yeah, well, I think the question of should we is key. And that's exactly right. We should be asking in an informed way, should we do this? Uh, we should do, therefore, if we decide to do it, we should do it intentionally and do it where design is key, that we're designing for the outcomes that we want. I think a good example uh, of this, where you could imagine that something, the same algorithm might be appropriate in one domain, but not in another, and it really hi highlights the justice aspects that you were just mentioning. Imagine a doctor trying to diagnose diabetic retinopathy. And you could imagine an algorithm that's trained to be accurate there, that, um, you know, let's say that over time it becomes 90% accurate and then 95% accurate. And I go to the doctor and I subject myself to this scan, this convolutional neural network scan that 
is, is used to supplement the doctor's decision about whether I have diabetic retinopathy. Well, maybe the best doctor in the whole world, maybe she gets 85% right. And maybe the uh, scan gets 90 or 95%, but she can't explain why it said I did, right? It saw something she didn't, but it, she can't explain. In that context, if I know that that algorithm is more accurate, but not explainable, I still probably prefer the algorithm because it deals with my health and I don't actually need an explanation. I just want to make sure that I treat it properly. Now, say, take that same scenario and put it in uh, a policing or a sentencing, criminal sentencing scenario. And here in criminal sentencing, what we're trying to predict is not diabetic retinopathy or not, but rather, will this person be likely to commit another crime or not, or be caught committing another crime or not? And here, the same algorithm, let's say, you know, the, the best uh, judges sitting and making these decisions uh, are about 85% accurate. It's probably, of course, very high, but it's just for the sake of example. Uh, and that the sentencing algorithm can move to 90%. Well, here, accuracy might not be the only value. So this goes back to should we. Just because it has a 5% improved optimization, does that mean that we should use it? Well, in that context, in this particular domain, there's something else about justice, as you point out. The part of our conception in, in this country and many others of due process is the ability to receive an explanation. And so if that 5% accuracy actually comes at the cost of transparency and explainability, then we might very well need to choose not to deploy it in that particular context, or we might deploy a purposefully less accurate algorithm that's more transparent right? Because it meets all of our needs. And so I think one thing that highlights is that this is why we need domain-specific thought leadership, right? We need people from all these industries to engage with the technologists and be able to help them understand the needs. And we need technologists who understand those needs as they build uh, the tool. And we need to balance interests in a really informed way. And there, and there's two, there are, are kind of two myths, Deb, that I think oftentimes come up here. You started that question that you just asked from the point where I have said in the past that uh, algorithms might be used to overcome biases. One myth is that the human use of the, or the, the pre-technology um, uh, sectors were functioning fine, right? Oftentimes people, you know, we can't assume that judges were without bias. We can't assume that those making credit determinations were without bias. So we have to compare it to, the, to what things are, right? And so there have been a lot of attempts over the last, just to keep with our example of sentencing, after, over the last, of course, the last half of the last century, to help judges make less biased and more uniform and predictable decisions around sentencing. And even before having machine learning tools, we had essentially what our sentencing algorithms in the federal sentencing guidelines and similar state guidelines. And so we've been trying to rid of what we've understood to be known biases. So the project of doing this is actually one where we're, we are trying to correct an, an ill. It's not as if we're comparing it to perfection. We're comparing it to the imperfect system that was before. And then the other myth um, is that uh, for a lot of these um, systems, whether it's in law, access to credit, health, or other areas, it's not as if we're comparing it to that best doctor in the world. That 80, We're oftentimes comparing it, at least in law, to zero. So in other words, if we're deploying an algorithm-driven tool, an, an, an AI tool in law, we're not always deploying it in a way where it's this versus a top-notch lawyer from a top firm. Most people, as I said before, have zero access to civil legal services. So even if it's a little bit imperfect and maybe it doesn't have them allow them to have that moment of voicing their concerns in court or whatever it is, we may indeed be missing 
perfect justice, but uh, but some justice might be better than the zero that they had before. And I think I think we just need to be really honest about all those things. And here's a term that I would share with your students that I'd love um, for more to explore. And it's a term I use with mine, but I, I call it techno-social scrutiny. And what I mean by that is that sometimes the introduction of an imperfect technological tool is actually the impetus for us to relook at our social systems and better understand them and better understand their shortcomings better. You know, so uh, a, a quick example is the the AV, you know, an, an Uber owned uh, automated vehicle that was being tested in Tempe, Arizona, unfortunately hit a pedestrian and killed her. And um, you know, it's sad, and there's a, a lot of uh, uproar about these AVs being tested. But one thing it also pointed out is that there was a homeless encampment of, that everybody knew about in the, in the city of Tempe next to a road that, uh, where they knew people were crossing, and they had taken no measures to help people cross safely, right? So the Uber, the technology, the AV was a bad thing. But what it may help us do is look back at this, the existing structure, uh, that literally that crosswalk, that street, the place where um, people who are suffering homelessness were living, and maybe deal with that a little bit better. And I think the same with sentencing algorithms. Maybe it helps us to better understand the biases that are happening on our current bench, or maybe it helps us to better understand the mistakes we're making in credit determinations and, and allow us to move forward um, in, a, in a more informed way. Yeah, I think at its very best, uh, an interdisciplinary approach is a way for you know, technology to provide a prism for us to understand our human values. And as a humanist, uh, an approach that involves the foregrounding of human values to better help us understand our technology. One more way that uh, tech is like literature, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I really like that term, techno-social scrutiny. I'm going to use that. One of your courses is a law and policy lab focused on tech. One of the values of this course is thinking about the role of decentralized networks that might at some point replace or at least become symbiotic with those centralized systems. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the shifting terrain from centralized to decentralized systems. What does that shift mean for law and for tech? That's great. So just so you know, as background, that was particularly a course focused on blockchain distributed ledger technologies. And so it was really a, um, a core component of that course. But, but in terms of centralization and decentralization, I think these are really core topics that I may be thinking about even more now than when I was teaching that course. And I think I'm thinking about them more now because of um, my own growing awareness and learning about um, current racial justice movements. So, um, I mean, to start on the technology side, I think the history of the internet that you know, if you read the literature from the early 90s, promised decentralization and, uh, you know, all of this, uh, let's form our own private civilizations without government intervention. You know, of course, none of that came true uh, and ended up with quite inevitable centralization, um, both economic and legal. You know, that, that's what prevailed. I mean, we were able to, to pull levers with uh, ISPs, internet service providers, um, major companies that um, provide many of these services, et cetera. We found ways to centralize and therefore to reapply um, legal and policy tools. Um, but I nonetheless see centralization and decentralization as an important component of power and a balance of power. And oftentimes, uh, too much centralization can be the enemy of one of the ethical values that you and I might talk about, which is autonomy, right? And I think we've seen the ability to be to operate outside of centralized frameworks as important. People oftentimes hold up the, the Arab Spring uh, and the use of Twitter as an example of um, kind of the inability to shut down voice through a cent in, a, in a centralized society. 
uh, and that's of course a good example. There, other people will ra- will say that there's been platform-based censorship going on, and certain voices are being shut out because of uh, the centralization and these techno- technological tools. And it raises questions around autonomy, and especially around minority communities that may not have their voices uh, being heard. And so, I definitely don't think that decentralization is the natural mode. But we do have a range of tools that, if shaped properly, if maintained properly, could be used in, I think, a world that's not very much ours right now, but could be used to help empower certain communities, to help um, undermine the, uh, the deep and vast centralization of power that uh, marginalizes many, uh, to help add tools and ability to engage with one another and create your own rule sets for uh, various justice movements, to help amplify minority voices, to help give greater agencies agency to um, communities that have felt um, left out, et cetera. But I think the key for me, Deb, is that that's not, in my estimation, the technological landscape we have right now. And if we do find power in increased agency through de- decentralization, which is, I think, question number one, then question number two becomes, how do we reshape the tools at hand in order to accomplish that? Because that's not uh, the, that's not the, what we have right now. We have you know a few main technology players. Um, most of our stuff is centralized. I don't get to go on. I'm just going to, I'm not trying to bash any particular player, but um, you know, I'm not able to go on to Facebook right now and change the algorithm in a way that suits me best. I'm, I'm subject to it in the same way that somebody uh, elsewhere is pretty much. Um, and that to me doesn't feel like it's an, uh, enhancing my agency and autonomy. And so a decentralized way, even if it's just a decentralized rule set within that platform, um, it seems intimately related to autonomy for me. Do you see these new central nervous systems, right? These big giant tech companies that now take on some of the governance of our lives through their decisions about which algorithms, for example, um, control what you see in Facebook. Do you see them as having new, what we might think of as traditionally centralized governmental responsibilities? Do you think that they have particular legal responsibilities? It's certainly um, something we haven't seen before. And uh, you know, various scholars, I'll mention one, Kate Klonick, who, who writes an article about the new governors, kind of says that there's this private public space that they operate in such that she gives it a new term. And I think there's something to that. It's undeniable that the public square that we, you know, the conventional soapbox on the corner of the park or whatever it is, is oftentimes a lot more often happening on private platforms than it used to. Um, it's undeniable too that questions around CDA 230, which is the Communications Decency Act, and what happens there uh, and what has happened since the 90s with that particular legislation, uh, what happens with issues of liability for, for platforms, um, what happens with various other censorship laws, whether they be revenge porn laws or whatever it might be, all of these have effects on those private marketplaces of ideas. So I think the, the very simple answer is, Yes, these uh, resources, these new technology tools are playing a role in really important ways. What I think is most pernicious, perhaps, is that behind the scenes, there are algorithms that are de- helping to determine uh, where, what, what kind of speech we see, um, where, uh, nudging us in certain directions, and we don't have a lot of transparency. We, we have almost no insight into what's happening there. And in addition to no insight, we have no control. Um, so by engaging, of course, we have the choice of whether to engage. But after that, we we don't have control. And I think that's something that deserves greater public awareness and discussion. 
um, to see the ways in which we are being, um, our, our data is being used to make us the product, um, that, are, that we are being manipulated, that our um, public fabric is being uh, shifted and changed in ways that are not wholly um, positive. We can mention, uh, of course, um, you know, the, the kind of increasing isolation and extremism that we at least sense and that some studies have, have shown to be true. We could mention the um, disinformation campaigns that have been successful uh, from everything from vaccines to um, elections and, and, and Brexit and other types of things. Uh, we could mention online um, harassment and uh, bullying and uh, that kind of thing. You know, these are things that you know, if you had said online harassment to my parents growing up, they would have had no idea what I was talking about. These are new issues, uh, and we need greater insight into the ways in which the um, platforms are shaping technology in order to deal with them. And in that way, I do feel like there's a public aspect to what's going on here. You know, this is deeply terrifying to me. And uh, one of the small glimmers of hope that I see in this is that I also see some of these same tech companies developing new jobs that I see advertised for people with law degrees to come and help them think about some of the, is the, these issues. Now, I tend to be somewhat of an optimist and not a cynic. And so my general thinking about this is that, you know, sure, possibly they're responding to what has been termed a tech lash, which is a backlash against some of the unintended but deeply damaging consequences of technology. And sure, some of it is PR. But I really do think that on some level, you know, the people who create these technologies are not power hungry monsters. They're people who had a utopian vision that has gone awry and they want to do better if they can do better. I don't know if this is public yet, but a few weeks ago, my ethical technology research team which I will add is really developed through and in conversation with and, and in lead, the leadership of our students, completed and circulated a study that our students conducted over the summer, which looked at the growth of what we're calling an ethical technology job sector in the industry. And over the past couple of years, I've been tracking what I had initially observed to be a growing number of jobs in the tech industry that foregrounded ethics as desired skills or background or training and what they were looking for, what they were hiring for, or specified that ethics was part of the responsibility of a role. Our research actually ended up quantifying and verifying this observation and I, I think really discovered what we could now almost call a new sort of professional role, uh, an ethical technologist. And a large portion of these jobs we discovered actually ask for legal training. They carry titles like compliance officer or ethical officer or legal policy program lead and a JD is one of their desired or required traits. What kind of skills or background or training do you think that somebody who is filling this kind of role ought to have, aside from the JD certification? How would you go about training somebody to become a legal practitioner in the context of an ethical or public interest technology role? Yeah, that, that's exciting research, and it sounds intuitively right to me. If I can name three things why I think that sounds intuitively right to me about the growth of that particular area. One is that it's true that technologies are just doing something different than they used to do. And so insofar as many of our technologies are making or helping to make decisions, they play a different role than any technology in history before, right? So 
um, decision making is an ethical exercise. And so therefore, uh, part of it is just a recognition that from whether it's computer scientists or social thinkers, whatever it might be, technology is playing a different role. The second is that I think most people in these companies are good people who want to do well uh, and want to do um, the right thing. Uh, I, I don't think that these companies are filled with uh, evil folks trying to, to harm society at all. In fact, they're doing quite the opposite. I think many of them believe in the power of technology to make the world a better place. And so having folks who help them to ask the right answers and then shape their products in the right way uh, is, a, is a really meaningful thing to them. And then I do think there's also some of the scrutiny, the public scrutiny, political scrutiny, et cetera, on these companies. Uh, nobody wants to get called before Congress. And so um, there is also some of that, right? Just pragmatically, this will help us to uh, avoid the kind of disastrous public relations uh, issues that we that we don't want to be a part of. But uh, yeah, in terms of this, these new jobs, and, and for my students, for your students, for all sorts of students, please, um, please know that this seems like a growing area, right? Uh, and not just to be a technologist, but to be an ethical technologist, one who's acutely aware and always thinking about the role that the technology plays in the communities where it's um, being used. And, um, you know, in terms of training, I, I think legal training is great for this. Um, I think legal training coupled with an understanding of uh, technology and the way uh, companies work is really important. I think design as a, uh, a tool set, human-centered design is a really, really helpful skill set. There are certifications that folks can get in uh, privacy. So uh, I've mentioned a couple of times data and how it's so central to uh, some of our uh, ethical decision-making and our balance between protection and, and productivity. There are privacy officers, as you mentioned, compliance officers oftentimes at organizations that help them to comply with the law. But most privacy officers at companies, and especially those trained through programs like, I'm just going to mention one that's an example, the International Association of Privacy Professionals. They offer what's called SIP certifications, CIPP, um, and CIPT, CIPT certifications, they're, they're not trained to just help people comply with the law in kind of a bare minimum compliance. They're designed to try to protect their companies and protect the public interest around uh, data and, and the, the flow of, of data. And so there's lots of training out there that people can take, I think, to help them be not only attractive as candidates for these jobs, but also more effective in these jobs. And I think most importantly, more able to talk across an organization and across organizations with those who don't play the same role as them. So it's whatever training people get, it seems most helpful to me that somebody could leave the uh, the office of general counsel and walk down with the engineering team and sit and have a really productive conversation about what's going on and both parties understand each other better. That that to me seems to be the core of it. But the, your general premise here and what your research has borne out, Deb, seems not only right to me, but also exciting. I mean, wh what a great what a great time to be uh, in school and, and, and heading out into society because all this stuff is really exciting in the role that we can play in making it uh, technology development into ethical technology uh, ethical technology development is a, a daunting demanding task but also an exciting one so not to temper your enthusiasm which i'm very glad for and very grateful for but the small cynic in me sometimes pops up to say but deb aren't these jobs perhaps just a way that the tech company hiring an ethical compliance officer, somebody versed in the law, um, ways to make sure that the tech company is following within a very kind of narrow stricture of required uh, and obligated 
um, terms rather than doing something inherently ethical. And that cynic in me asks the question of whether or not a tech company can really internally regulate itself or whether we should be also creating structures in place like oversight boards where, where trained legal thinkers and practitioners can not only think about you know, whether or not a tech company is following its own legal best interests, but whether or not it's actually following something you might say like the spirit of the law or to come back to that pyramid, bringing together the, the legal and the ethical, whether or not this is in line with a larger principle at stake. What would you what would you say about that? Do you think that we need more things like oversight boards? Can you imagine a moment where Duke not only trains the next generation of legal thinkers and practitioners to think in terms of ethics and technology so that they can go into industry, but also that you know you're creating new nonprofits and new activist boards and and new um, arenas of of oversight. Absolutely. Let me go back to what I said before, where when you asked me about the core legal challenge, I said it's to maintain trust in the digital age. Uh, and I think what you're pointing out here is, in, is absolutely true, particularly in certain organizations. They might perceive this as a public relations ploy or something else. But as I said before, I think we need this vast proliferation of attempts to restore trust. So oversight boards, watchdog NGOs, um, modifications of fiduciary duties, legal leverage and, and fines and, and punishments. You know, there, there may be a range of things that we should try and, and attempt to do. Um, and then on top of that, I think even if there's an organization that sets out a compliance officer or an ethics compliance officer, and it's largely perfunctory, uh, let me use a legal analogy. There was a case, Marbury versus Madison, where it really established what you know the role of the court was going to be uh, when many perceived it to have been you know maybe a rubber stamp or have no um, ability to push back on the other branches of, of government. I could imagine somebody who's especially one who's trained by you or somebody else who's actually deeply ethical and asks the right kinds of questions, move into one of those roles and actually take something that would not otherwise have been meaningful and make it meaningful. And I guess what I'm emphasizing there is that I think a lot of this comes down to the people, the people who the next generation who's trained in the right way to understand that this matters uh, and that. Uh, anybody who I would hope that any of our students who move into the, one of these roles would do them the right way. Um, and so I think our best attempt to make that happen, I have very little leverage over any company to do um, to change its structure, to create an oversight board or whatever. But uh, at least from in my life, where I have the most leverage is to help my students be really thoughtful, challenge me, challenge every institution and entity with it, which with which they interact uh, to do the best that they that they can for our for our society. And so um, I 100 percent agree. We need a really wide range of creative endeavors that try to restore trust in technology. And at least for you and I, I think our your podcast, I think, goes a lot a long way for doing it for many people. But our most uh, immediate and proximate way of doing that is through helping our students to be really critical thinkers moving forward. Maybe I could close our conversation up by asking you to push that a little bit further. You know, we talked earlier on in the conversation about Justice Ginsburg and her careful attention to the particular. And I wanted to ask a question to you that really is about your particular care and your particular vision for what you're doing here in teaching at the intersection of technology and law. You know, you said it's about the people. And as the person who's really at the forefront here of 
this new way of thinking and new way of teaching, what kind of change within technological culture are you specifically hoping to facilitate by training a generation of legally minded and trained workers to think about the intersection of law and tech? Are you training students to fill these roles? Are you training them for and in anticipation of them coming into those roles? Or are you hoping to perhaps facilitate some uh, change in tech or legal culture through your work or the curriculum you craft and you teach? Yeah, that's a good and really challenging question. And I'm going to go back to a term. Here comes the English teacher in me, right? <laughs> and I and, and the, the term that I, I find I kind of riles me is to talk about technology or to, you know, to talk about a technologist. And I find that everybody needs to understand that you know, technology does not happen in a vacuum. There is a social contextual component to every technology. And so I like to, my students and I talk about, we borrowed this from a friend of mine, Dr. Michael Clemen, uh, talk about being sociotechs. We talk about sociotechnical systems. We talk about cyber technical systems. And it's that system part or the context part of that that seems so important to me. So what do I want to change? I'd love everybody to understand that um, every design choice, every, everything we do with technology has social ramifications, even the small decisions. So every design element, every choice we make has social ramifications, even if it's just to deter one particular group from engaging with the technology more than another. Those are real social ramifications. And so in terms of changing things, I'd love everybody, law students, but also computer scientists, engineers, et cetera, to always recognize that these are socio-technical systems and therefore no computer scientist, no lawyer, no, no, none of them as an individual can ever solve one of these problems on their own. And so that they will fervently seek out the help and the dialogue um, with others and that they will recognize that before anything gets pushed out the door, we, we need to have an, an ethical discussion of its ramifications. So that would be one. And then um, I guess the other thing that I'd, I'd say is, you know, I think uh, it really is helpful for me to have a community of people uh, who are working on the same thing. You asked earlier, Deb, about are there people doing this, et cetera? Well, here you are. There's, there's other networks that I'm a part of. It's just really important for us to not also think that we have the answer um, and that we're in the midst of and in the very middle of uh, trying to discern what this really means for our society. And I think we're just better off through discourse. So if I could instill anything in my students, I think it would be a curiosity and an energy, an attitude of wanting to engage. And that's not just my students. I want current sitting judges. I want corporate leaders. I want others to realize that this, these are discussions worth engaging in. And your podcast, your teaching, um, other networks go a long way toward that. So we just need to do a whole lot more of this. <laughs> so. Thank you very much, Jeff. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.